my name is Nate, and I'm on the teaching team here, and it's, uh, it's always an honor to uh, have the opportunity to open the Word and, and just seek the Lord together. This morning, we are continuing on in our Advent series that we've been calling Anticipating Jesus, and we've spent this Christmas season so far kind of looking back we, we looked at the forerunner to Christ and the, the prophecies and how, how the Lord made it known that Jesus was coming. And then last week, Matt got up and shared that we are to behold the Lamb of God. That when Jesus came the first time, He came as a Lamb. He came in humility. He came to forgive us of our sins by ultimately walking a road that led to the cross where He died in our place for our sins to set us free and then to restore our relationship to God. And that truth, as we look back, impacts this reality in that it grows us in our ability to trust that we live as forgiven saints, as forgiven sons and daughters of the Most High God, that that we also then have the opportunity to live in obedience and in imitation of Christ in His sacrificial love and in His humility, that we have been sent into this world as ambassadors for Christ, that we represent that Lamb of God. And this morning, we're going to pick up from there, and we're going to, instead of looking back, we're going to look ahead. And so as I've, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Revelation 19. I know many of you woke up this morning thinking it's a week before Christmas. Man, I hope redemption's in Revelation and you got your wish. We are going to look at Revelation 19 this morning. And the more I've thought about this passage and the more I prepared, the more excited I got at just what God has for us in this. But this feels like to me what I've come to call a diehard sermon. And what I mean by that is there is a debate that rages on in culture this time of year. And that is, is the movie Die Hard with John McClane a Christmas movie? And I don't want to ask your opinion because we'd probably disagree. But it doesn't feel like a Christmas movie to me because there's just an awful lot of carnage that occurs. And it doesn't feel weird to watch Die Hard in June. It feels awesome to watch it anytime. Um, This isn't at the onset going to feel like a Christmas message. But I believe what the Lord has for us as we look ahead and as we anticipate the Lord who is going to return, it will impact our Christmas season. It will impact how we live our lives and reorient our hearts around the fact that the Jesus that came in humility as a tiny little babe wrapped in cloth and laid in a manger, surrounded by livestock and tucked away in a cave, that he is coming back. And it will change how we worship the King of Kings this holiday season. And so we're going to read Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16. But I think it's important to know at the onset that the author of this book, John, is doing his very best to put on paper a vision that he receives of the heavens and the glories of the Lord and what it's ultimately going to look like. And I believe there's a limitation in, you, in just our language, when we study this book and look at this passage this morning. And so just real quick, though, I want to I want to ask how many of you had read a book that they that Hollywood took and made into a movie and the movie was better than the book? Show of hands. 
The movie surpassed the book. Man, unanimous. Oh, one. You ruined it. No, I'm just kidding. So last service, there was one out of 40, 50 people in the room. And last service, we batted a thousand. There was zero. That more often than not, when we, when we read a book, it surpasses the movie. The book is always better, um, except for one. And I want to know the movie because I got to see it. Um, and read the book. Apparently, I don't have to. Um, but more often than not, you get swept up in your imagination. You can create the character. You can create the voices when you're reading the book. And the authors go into greater detail than Hollywood comes along. And they put their spin on it and usually ruin it. Well, this morning, we're going to read this account. And what I want us to do is I want us to get caught up in the fact that John is writing, doing his very best to put into words this this scene that one day we will get to see. One day we will get to participate in. And in this case, I believe the movie, if you will, is going to far surpass the limitations of our language. In no way am I saying that the word of God is not God-breathed and inspired and profitable and transforming. I just think that when we study books like Revelation, when we look at what's going to come when the Lord returns, when he comes, it's going to be so much greater than even our imaginations can get caught up in this morning. But I want us to go there. I want us to, to picture ourselves on this day. I want us to feel the emotions of our coming Lord and King because he's returning. And so we're going to read Revelation 19, 11 through 16. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following with him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Last week, we looked at Jesus coming as the Lamb, and we were encouraged to spend time as we draw closer to Christmas, meditating on the Lamb of God and beholding the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But this morning, what I want us to focus on is the fact that 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 lamb who came in humility is going to return. And he's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as the Lord of Lords. And we're going to look at three ways that he's going to return. And and something that's helpful, I think, at the onset is we've spent time looking back at the prophecies of Jesus coming. We've spent time looking at the fulfillment of that and how he came. And something that a friend of mine told me several years ago that's just been really practical and really helpful for me is that past patterns predict future behavior. That what we did yesterday most likely dictates how we're going to act today and how we're going to act tomorrow. More often than not, that's the case. And when it comes to Jesus, we can take and apply that here and say his past pattern that he's going to give signs and warnings. He's going to give prophecies and things that are going to happen. And then he's going to be faithful and true. And it's going to happen. 
And then he came as a baby. He came in humility. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. And he ascends into heaven and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then in books like Revelations and Thessalonians and um, Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, we get this is what's going to happen before the Lord comes back. And so he was faithful to his past pattern. That can give us hope for the future. That Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do. That he is coming back. And when he comes, first we see in verses 11 and 12 that he will come as Lord of Lord, Lord of Lords in honor. We see this, that when John sees heaven opened, he says, behold, a white horse. In a day and an age when the warfare was fought on, on the, on your feet, you were hand to hand combat. It was ground warfare to have a horse was of huge advantage. And it was only, uh, it was only given to those who would have been in places of prominence, in places of nobility and power and special. This was not everybody got to ride on a horse. And then, uh, John says that it's a white horse, a symbol of victory and purity, that Jesus comes as Lord of Lords in honor. And it says that we get the first of five names here for Jesus in verse 11. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. When Jesus came the first time, he came again as the Lamb of God in humility. And an angel prophesied to his parents, here's the name you'll give to Jesus. When Jesus comes back as Lord of Lords, no one gives him a name. He proclaims himself. He makes himself known. He reveals his honor as Lord of Lords. And the first name he gives himself of, I think it's five we're going to get in these five verses, is faithful and true. That the God who said he was going to come as a lamb and that was going to go and prepare a place for us is faithful and true to return. That a day is coming and it is approaching that he is coming back to get us, and he's going to return in honor. It says that in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Jeremiah 33 says that in those days, prophesying of this, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. That when Jesus comes, he comes in honor to execute justice and his righteousness in our land. We see that he's got eyes like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns. That he doesn't just have one crown, but rather many crowns that Jesus will sit in honor above all of the lords and all of the kings. And then this this last part of verse 12 kind of troubled me this week. It says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So just a little insight into me and my personality. I basically stopped maturing at about a toddler's age. And what is, the reason I say that is what is, what is a toddler's favorite question? Why? Exactly. Why? Why can't I play with fire? Why can't I run with scissors? Why shouldn't I push my sister down the stairs? They want to know these things. That is my all-time favorite question. I love the question why. And when I read the Bible, I come to the Bible and I love to ask, okay, God, why did you put this in here? Like he's gone to great lengths to preserve his word and record his word so that we can sit here this morning and examine it. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, understand it, Lord willing. And we get to this 
this phrase, this sentence that says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And when I ask myself, well, why would you do, like, that just seems unnecessary that John even had to write that down. And so being a good Bible student, I went to my commentaries and started to research what people way smarter than I had to say about this. And frustratingly, they say nothing or very, very little. And that was good for me because it drove me to prayer and it drove me to meditation. And I began to ask God, okay, why is this here? What would you have for us? Why, why would you write down that there's a name that you guys don't get to know? Why would you want John to record this? And the more I prayed through this verse and the more I just kind of let the Holy Spirit lead, I really believe one of, the, one of the things God wants to communicate in this is we live in a day and an age where we can get pulled very quickly into a Christianity that has us at the center, where it's about our works and our efforts and our desires and our hearts, and, and, and it's us, us, us. And here at the end, we're going to get five names for Jesus, and one of them we're told we don't get to know. That at the end of the story, just like at the beginning of the story, it's in the beginning God. At the end, it's still in the beginning God, who's bigger and more majestic and more mysterious than we will ever be able to comprehend. The Lord of Lords has gone to unbelievable lengths to make himself known. But as we plunge into the depths of who he is for an eternity, I believe there will always be a mystery to who God is. And what that does in my heart, and hopefully prayerfully in all of our hearts, is that shrinks us in this story and it makes God bigger. And allows us to step out of the way and say, Jesus, you are at the center of this. Because at the end of the day, you are faithful and true. You are the word of God. You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And you're more than that. More than we can even imagine or comprehend. Because you've given yourself all of these names. And Jeremiah, we saw him referred to as a righteous branch. And yet, it's still incomplete. We will never fully be able to wrap our hearts and minds around how big our God is. That is something to celebrate and worship as Christmas draws near. And that should cause us to marvel at the lamb who came as a baby. This God who's so big that we can't fully know him comes wrapped in cloth and laid in a manger. And he's coming back as Lord of Lords and he's coming back in honor. But not only is he coming back in honor, we see that he's going to come back to judge sin in verses 12 and 13, or 13 and 14, but it's first stated kind of in 11 where it says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. But we see this played out in verses 13 and 14. It says, his, he is clothed in a robe, dipped, your version may say sprinkled, in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. He doesn't just come in honor. He comes to judge sin. When he came as the lamb, he came to forgive sin. He came to take our sin away by dying in our place on the cross. When he comes back next, when he comes back, he's coming to judge sin. Whether your uh, version says dipped or sprinkled, can we agree that a robe with any amount of blood on it's probably not a fun day? Like that's not that's not a good day, depending on whose blood it is. And there's some debate in this verse over is this taking us back to the cross, and is this Christ's blood shed in our place for our sins? 
Or is this the blood of his enemies? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Isaiah 63 gives us some insight. Prophesying, I believe, about this day, the day of the Lord, when he returns. It says, why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Anybody in the mood for eggnog? Like Merry Christmas, right? Let's just, <laughs> let's just go home. That, that's, this is not, I believe, taking us back to the Lamb. This is proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And those who are objects of his wrath, their evidence and their, what happened, they become stains on his robe. And any form of Christianity that doesn't allow for God's wrath, I would say is ultimately unloving. Because God hates sin so much that he sent Christ to take our place and die a brutal death for our sin. Because God cannot stand sin. And so to say that God doesn't have wrath, that God doesn't oppose sin, allows people to stay in that sin and stay objects of God's wrath. And so it's important that we understand that when the Lord of Lord returns, he comes to judge sin. We have the opportunity now to behold the lamb and come under grace. And Jesus has done all so that we don't have to. He did what we could not do. And he's given us the spirit so that we have the power to believe in the lamb. But if we live our lives in rebellion, if we live our lives in rejection of the lamb, we will face the Lord. And he will judge sin and he will come and in a clo- in, he came clothed in little baby clothes wrapped in a manger the first time as the Lamb of God. As Lord, he comes back with a blood-stained cloak judging the sins of those who would oppose him. This should spur on how we live. This should change our Christmas. This should change how we look back because we have, we have testimony of what's coming down the road. This should change how you live in your neighborhood, how you go to work, how you go to school, who you, how you interact with people at stores, because the reality is the day is approaching when the Lord returns and the time for beholding the Lamb will have passed. And we are called to be ambassadors for Christ who's coming back to judge. Um, and I, I like in verse 14, it says, The army of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Jesus on their white horses. That we get to participate in this victory, looking just like Jesus, on horses just like Jesus. There's going to be armies of heaven right there following behind Jesus as his wrath goes out. Those who find themselves beholding the lamb and under grace are going to be be behind him. And I think of it like this. It's like the superstar on a basketball team or a sports team who carries their team to the championship. There may be a bunch of scrubs on the team, but they get to celebrate the victory. They get the ring. They get to hold the trophy, whatever it is, just like the superstar. 
And we see in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We did nothing to earn the victory. This day when the Lord of Lords returns, when the Lamb returns as Lord and King is not about us, but we get to participate in the victory. We get to celebrate because we have behold the Lamb of God. Because he came to take away the sin of the world. This day is a great day for those under grace. There is no condemnation. We now get to celebrate Jesus and his victory and participate in it because he comes to judge sin, but our sin has already been forgiven at the cross. And then we see he not only comes in honor or to, and to judge sin, but he also comes to reign and rule, not just in our hearts, but so that the whole world can see. Verses 15 and 16 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His word goes forth from his mouth like a sword and he strikes down the nation that there is no nation that will not be subject to the reign and rule of Christ. And he will rule them, it says, with a rod of iron. If we go back all the way to Psalm 2, David prophesying of this in Psalm 2 says, The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That the Lord came the first time to restore relationship with, to God. He came to restore humanity's relationship, make it available for us to enter into community with God the Father. When he comes back as Lord of Lords, he comes to reign and rule over every nation, over every tongue, over every tribe. He comes back to reign. We see that this is there's so much kingly language here. It says that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, that he's going to stomp out all who oppose him. And then we see that on his robe and his thigh, he has a name. The two last names we get here is King of Kings and Lord of of lords when Jesus rides into battle on his horse with the armies following behind him he rides in and again John let's remember he's trying to paint a picture here for the readers that they would understand that Jesus Christ is lord and king and common in this time would have been to, for the kings or the the generals whoever's riding into battle on a horse they would either have a sash or on the robe itself they would have the name of the king that the military fought for that the armies were fighting in the name of this king. And there's a couple of reasons why. When you're, when you're going into battle and you're the only one on a horse, right at eyesight would be that name of that king. So it would, it would spur on and give hope to the troops fighting the enemies that we fight in the name of the king. And then as that general or that king would go out into the battlefield and race on to, into the enemy's territory, the last name that they would see would be the name of that king on either that sash or on that robe. 
And so John is going to great lengths here to paint a picture that Jesus comes back as King and Lord. Not just is it written on his, on his, um, on his robe, but it's written on his thigh. And, and what I think that's talking about is there was commonly a sash that would have been wrapped around the thigh. And, and as they rode down on their horse, the robe would have probably parted. They're not riding like side saddle. These are guys going into war. They're, they're getting after it. And on the thigh would have been a place for a dagger. And on that dagger, more often than not, they would have written or inscribed that name of the king because you can kill somebody from far away with like a bow and arrow or a sword. I mean, I can't. I have no skill whatsoever. But somebody could. But a dagger? you got to be close. Like, you know what that person had for breakfast. Like, you're right up in it. That is an intimate, intimate battle. And I believe what John is doing here is saying that Jesus comes back as king and Lord in every way like a military general or a king would have fought for his army. That's what Jesus is coming back to do. He's coming back as a king to reign. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. That the Lamb of God who came in humility to forgive sin and restore our relationship with God is coming back to rule and reign. And we have the opportunity now to come under grace and behold the lamb but celebrate the fact that the lord is returning so how does this how does this help like looking through okay there's this day off in the future we don't know it could be five years it could be 10 it could be ten thousand years like we don't we don't know how does that impact today like this doesn't feel like a christmas message what how does this change how we live today i believe that in anticipation of the lord's return we can do three things. One, we can watch for his return. The reality is this is a day approaching. And so we should be ready. Luke 12 tells us that we must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And in Hebrews 9, we're told that Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Again, the lamb came to forgive. This time he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The reality is this is the day of our salvation. In one sense, yes, we have been saved through faith in Christ and we are working out that salvation. But this is the day where every tear is wiped. There is no more regret. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. We get to commune with Christ. This is the day of our salvation when Jesus comes back. One commentary I read said that really everything from Revelation 1 to 8 to 19 verse 10 is an introduction, is just preparing the way and getting us ready for verse 11 when Jesus comes back. That this should be what we're watching for. And so as followers of Jesus, we should love book like, books like Revelation. We should love Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the Thessalonians. We should love those books because it gives us the roadmap and it gives us some insight as to what is coming. And just like past patterns predicted Jesus' first coming as the Lamb, we can watch and be ready for Jesus to come back again. And so we should watch. Not only should we watch, but we should wish 
for his return. We should long for this day when Jesus comes back as Lord and King. First Thessalonians 3 says that now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that, here's the key part, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That on this day, when the, when the Lamb returns as Lord and King, he will make our hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father. There will no, there will no longer be a, a regret or a shame or and I wish I hadn't have said that, or I wish I hadn't have done that, or if I had only done that, or if I had only said that, that will be done. That will be gone. We will be holy and blameless before God. Our hearts should long for this. And I admit there's some tension in this for me because I have, I have stuff still in this life. I feel like, yeah, but I, I look forward to my kids growing up. I look forward to growing old with my life. I, Lord willing, look forward to being mortgage-free. Like there's things I want to do. There's things I want to accomplish. But the idea that there is a day where my heart will be blameless before God. We should get swept up in that. We should long for that. We should be watching and wishing for him to come back. And then finally, until he returns, we should be at work. This isn't just, okay, Lord, you're coming. And so I'm going to put my hands in my pockets and I'm going to watch. I'm, I'm going to watch CNN and get frustrated. And I'm going to, I'm going to wish for you to get back because I'm sick of culture. Like this is driving me nuts. And you just become like a holy huddle and never do anything. No, we need to work. First Thessalonians 5 says that we're to encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And then in verse 14, he says, we urge you brothers, admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. That between now and whenever the Lord returns, we should be hard at work. Jesus has put you in your neighborhood. He's put you at your job. He's put you in your, your gym or your, the grocery store that you shop at most frequently or the coffee shop that you buy your, your whatever. He has you there to be salt and light as those who have embraced the Lamb of God, in anticipation of His return, we should be at work because the reality is you either stand under grace, covered by the blood of the Lamb, or you stand as objects of wrath. This should, this should make us bold in our faith with our friends who don't know Christ. We should be looking for opportunities to make Him known we should be searching for ways to take conversations about football or politics or promotions or family or whatever it might be and pivot to the gospel. Because can anything be more important than the fact that the Lord of Lords is coming and he is going to establish his rule, he is going to judge sin and he's going to do so in an honorable way. And if you don't stand as one who has embraced the lamb, you stand as one in judgment by the Lord. This should change how we celebrate and think about Christmas. Because we can look back and we can have confidence that, Jesus, if you came in humility, just like you said you were going to do, 
And if you came to forgive sin, just like you said you were going to do, and you were faithful to that, you're going to return. And so we can take this season where our culture is just more open to conversations about Jesus. You drive down the road and you hear, you hear hymns on secular stations. You hear Christmas songs proclaiming the name of Jesus all over the place. We can seize these moments and these opportunities to make Jesus known because the Lamb is returning as Lord. And while we don't know the time or the place, he says, be ready. And we should not be idle. And so my question to you this morning would be, how are you getting ready for the Lord's return? And all the hustle and bustle to get ready for Christmas, how are you getting ready for the Lord to come back? How are you seizing every conversation with your neighbor, with your family, with your coworkers? Now, don't, don't like go be that weird guy who's pounding people with tracks and stuff. Relationship is key, but search for opportunities to make Jesus known. How are you working on your own heart to prepare the way? How are you watching and knowing the word of God so you can be ready for him to return? He has placed us here as ambassadors for Christ until he returns. And and so we need to grab a hold of the lamb because the Lord is coming. And I can think of no better way than to behold the lamb than at the table this morning. And so we're going we're gonna to transition into a time of communion where we get to look back at the lamb who came to take away the sin of the world, whose body was broken and blood was shed in our place. And as 1 Corinthians says, that every time we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim the lamb until he comes as Lord. And so what I'd like us to do as the worship team comes up is to spend some time just reflecting on the Lord and embracing the lamb whose body was broken and his blood was shed so that today we can be under grace and we can be excited about the Lord who is coming. That this is a day for us of victory, but it's because we've beheld the lamb of God. And so as you come up front to partake in communion. You can just uh, grab a cracker, dip it in the juice, and worship the lamb who is returning as Lord. And then I want you to just prayerfully, again, as we worship, as you commune with God, search your heart. How are you anticipating his return? How are you getting ready for Jesus to come back? What does that mean for you this Christmas?